I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 2 this morning. We're going to jump around a little bit, but our launching pad and landing pad will be 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 2. Now, I don't plan to yell at you like I did last Sunday. Amen? But that doesn't mean that I'm not excited about what we're going to study this week. I'm very much excited Today we're going to have our ninth monthly message in our Gospel Roots series that we've been doing once a month this year. We've been revisiting the foundational values of our church family. We've been going back over our 125-year history from that side of, of Lita's timeline to that side of Lita's timeline, and we have been surfacing the major important things that have made us who we are. So we've talked about the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. We've talked about singing the gospel, taking the gospel to the lost, being a prayerful church, being a church that stands on the word of God, being a church that is involved in world missions, being a church that loves each other as family, being a church full of servants who know that their labor in the Lord is not in vain. So what is the topic for today. Here's the title of our message for this morning. It is, It is Our Other Middle Name. A number of years ago, I preached a sermon entitled, It's Our Middle Name, about that hard to spell and almost hard to read word, evangelical or evangelical, depending on who you ask. That word evangelical means gospel-oriented, all about the gospel. Because gospel is evangel in Greek. And even though it's hard to spell, and even though some people abuse the word, I've always been glad that it's our middle name. Because it reminds us that we're supposed to be centered on the gospel. But today, I want to talk about our other middle name. The middle name that's easy to pronounce and easy to spell and that our church often goes by. What is it, Lance? Free church. Why do we call ourselves free? It's not because we don't take an offering. I know know somebody who thought that. Because some EFCA churches don't take an offering during the service. They just have a a box in the back you can put your envelope in when you come or go. Uh, This fellow thought that free meant that you didn't have to give anything. And if you're a guest here, I hope that's how you feel while you're here. You don't have to give anything. But that's not what we mean by free. And we don't mean that we are free of evangelicals. There was actually an EFCA church out west that changed their church name because a lot of the people in their community thought that their church church name meant that there was no gospel there. There was no evangelicals. We're free of evangelicals. No evangel. Well, that's not what we mean by free either. The word free in our name actually refers to our form of church government how we organize and direct our affairs as a church, how we're structured and ordered and governed as a church. In that sense, we are free. We are what is called congregational, which means that we are autonomous or a self-governing congregation. We are free from outside control. Now, there are many different ways to organize as a church. There are several popular church structures throughout church history, or what we call church polities, the way churches are 
are, are structured as a group of people. You've probably heard of these different polities or even come from a church in the past that practiced a different polity than we do. Most of the different polities have some, di- some biblical basis to them, some part of the biblical picture that those tr- church traditions emphasize. For example, there is the Episcopal structure, which is kind of a, a top-down structure that, that uh, like the Roman Catholic Church or the United Methodists or the Episcopal Church itself. Episcopal comes from the Greek for oversight. It's a biblical word. It's a biblical word, an idea of looking down over and providing oversight. Then there's the Presbyterian structure. Some of you may have come from that, which emphasizes the role of elders in Greek presbyteroi. That's the elders. And these elders in a region exercise authority over the local churches in that region. They go to presbytery, if you've heard that kind of language. And there are other polities out there too, kind of variations on those. But our polity is congregational, which means, again, that the congregation, that the church membership is self-governing. It is not top-down, it's bottom-up. It is free from outside control. Where do we get that? Well, first we get it from our history. Remember in the spring when I told you about the lay Bible readers movement in Scandinavia after the Protestant Reformation? Nod your head yes, I remember that, Pastor Matt. Okay, those Scandinavian believers in Jesus wanted to read the Bible for themselves. And they asked the question, Var stardet scrivit? Where stands it written? Well, we aren't used to this here in the USA, but, but they all belonged to the state-run church, which in the case of the Scandinavian nation states was the Lutheran church. So if you were born in Sweden, you were baptized as a Lutheran. That's what you were. If you were Swedish, basically you were Lutheran. The church and the state were intertwined. We're not used to that. We don't see that. And in many ways, the church told the state what to do. Well, those believers were studying their Bibles, right? Where stands it written? And they couldn't find any place that said that the church was supposed to be a part of the government or that the government was supposed to direct the business of the church. Where is that written, they said. So they wanted their churches to be, in a word, free. Especially free to read and follow the Bible for themselves. And when bunches and bunches of those Scandinavian believers came over to the United States in the late 19th century, they started up what they called free churches. Free now of state control. And free of any outside control, in fact including the control of other churches or other church leaders. Does that make sense? So that's where our middle name comes from in our history. But where does free come from in our Bibles? It's not the same kind of free as we've been talking about the last few weeks in in the book of Galatians. This is a little trickier. Now, I believe it's in there. I believe in congregationalism. But it's not the gospel. And it's certainly not as clear as some of the other doctrines that we believe. Church polity is something that genuine believers can have genuine disagreements about. But I do think it's in there. And I think it's good for us to spend at least one Sunday every ten years thinking about it. I want to start by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with you. Yes, all that was just an introduction. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, 
so you get the context, but we're just going to study verse 2 together. It's part of the hello section, the salutation at the beginning of a letter. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for 125 years of this church being free. I pray, Father, that... uh, I pray, Father, that we would understand just a little better what that means and what that means for us today because we've looked into your holy word. Help me, Lord, to get these passages right and to explain them well in such a way that we we have clarity and we have a direction. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, whom it is so sweet to trust. Give us grace to trust him more. Amen. I bet you're wondering what's in here, right? You see this up here and you think, ah, this is a Gospel Roots Sunday. What artifact can stand for our other middle name? Have you seen these books? Do these look familiar? These are the books that uh, sit on top most of the time of our display case out in the foyer. Um, for, these are the record books of the Swedish, the Swedish Free Church of Lance. This first one here says, Protokoll book for Swinska Free for Samlingen. How, how's my Swedish? Vera, how'd I do? Yeah, okay. She says, sure. Sure, Pastor Vat, sure. I, Google Translate tells me that means minutes of the Swedish Free Church. And the first entry is dated February 13th, 1892. So in 1892, one of our forebears took his his little pen and he dipped it in the ink and he wrote, because they didn't have Bic back then, right? And he wrote this. It's signed by Alexander Gustafsson, something Olson, and Gust Nelson. Um... When our original ten members gathered in the home of A.J. Palmquist, they organized themselves and took down these minutes here together. This next book starts in 1905. These these two are from the 1940s. And this one here, this this big one, uh, is, is called the Church Register Record and Ministerial Accounts. And, uh, and if you turn to page 40, you find the name Rosella Arroway. Right in there. And on page 52, you find the name Beatrice Johnson. Uh, and, and Vera Edgren's in here too, but I can't find the page number. Um, these are the official books they kept to organize and to order themselves as a church family. This is a copy of the original constitution of this church. Now, I know you can't read that. Uh, but uh, d- you couldn't read it anyway. It's in Swedish. Okay? It says, in translation, Constitution for the Swedish Free Congregation. The Bible shall be the only infallible precept and guide for her faith and conduct. The assembly, congregation, belongs 
owes its allegiance to God, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. And then they say they hope that they may assemble in a manner acceptable to God. He has given Christ to be head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1.22. These two in our box are today's constitution and bylaws. And Article 5 of our present Constitution says, This church is, as its name implies, I love that, free, that is, independent or self-governing. Now, where do we get that? Where do we get this idea that this, independent, this, this church is, is free or self-governing? I have four points to make from just one verse today. And here's number one. The church is people. Look again at what Paul writes in verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Let me start by saying something really obvious here. Paul is writing his letter to people. I know that's kind of obvious, right? But it is. It is true. He is not writing to a building, right? He is not writing to an institution. He is not writing to a campus. He is not writing to a concert or to a lecture or to some kind of a show. Paul is writing to a group of people and he calls those people the church. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Now, let me say something crazy right now. You ready? Say, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. All right, hit me with it. You cannot go to church. You cannot go to church. And let me say something on top of that. There is no Bible verse that says that you should go to church. Do you know why? Because church is not something you can go to. Church is something that you are. Now, we use that language that way. That's fine. You know, go to church. I say that too. We know what we mean. Or do we? Sometimes our use of language can trip us up if we are not careful. The church is not a building. The church is not even a worship experience. The church is a people. A holy people. Did you see that in verse 2? To those, he means people, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. That's Paul's short definition of a church. A people group that are made holy, sanctified by Jesus and called to be holy by Jesus. I love that he's got both there in the same verse, right? Because they're both true. It's true that Jesus makes us holy and He calls us to holiness. Jesus' blood washes us clean and makes us holy. Amen. And the Spirit of holiness calls our names and beckons for us to live out that holiness in everyday life. And get this. That's one of the key reasons for the church. That we would help each other to live holy lives. Jump over with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 1, but look with me at what Peter says about who we are. 1 Peter 2, start in verse 4. As you come to Him, that's Jesus, 
the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Wow, what an amazing verse that is. That is absolutely amazing. First, Jesus is called a living stone. This, this past week I met a pastor whose their church is called Living Stones Fellowship. It's right out of this verse. Okay. Je- Jesus is called a living stone, which I don't know about you, but I think that's a contradiction in terms, right? A stone that's alive. It's, it, it's a picture of absolute strength, a rock, combined with absolute life, a living stone. He was rejected by men at the cross, but he was chosen by God and precious to him. And look what that makes us. We are living stones, right? So, honey, honey, if he says, uh, uh, if you go home and your honey says, uh, they, the pastor called me a blockhead this morning, you're right, right? In this sense, we're all blockheads. We are living stones. Now, we're holy building material, he says. And what are we being built into? He calls it a spiritual house. What's that? That's a temple. And watch the metaphor change before our eyes to, to, to what you find inside the temple. A holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Not animal sacrifices. That's over. Spiritual sacrifices. In other words, our hearts. The church is a holy people and a holy priesthood. Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers grabbed a hold of this passage and others like it, and they said that the church was the priesthood of all believers. That was one of the catchphrases of the Reformation. The priesthood of all believers. Friends, that's amazing. I almost titled this message, You Are a Priest. Because that's right. You see yourself in that verse? If you are in Christ, you are part of a priesthood. Skip down to verse 9. Church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Put those two things together. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. That is what we are. That's what the church is. We're not just a people, we're a a priesthood, a royal, we belong to the king, priesthood. You know what that means? It means that we don't need another mediator. We don't need someone else to stand between us and God. We don't need a priest. I am not your priest, praise the Lord. You don't come to God through Pastor Matt. You don't come to God through Pastor Jeff Powell. You don't come to God through President Kevin Complin. Praise the Lord. There is now only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Not me. Not a priest. Not a bishop. Not a pope. Not Mary. Just Jesus. And He's made us priests. The priesthood of all believers. We are all privileged to come into the presence of God and to intercede for others. We are all called to help each other be holy. Not just the pastor. All of us. 
This church had no pastor when it began in 1892. You're not going to find pastor so-and-so in the minutes in 1892. But this was a church. It was a bona fide church. You don't need a pastor to have a church. Don't get any ideas. You don't need a building to have a church. Wonderful tool to have. Completely unnecessary. You don't need a building or a pastor to have a church, but you do need a holy people. Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians 1. Look again at verse 2. Here's point number 2. The church is local. The church is local. Paul writes, to the church of God, where? In Corinth. That's important. Paul envisions the church to be a gathered group in a certain location. The church is not the location. But it is the holy people who are connected to one another and gather with one another in a location. You see this in the letters. To the church of God in Corinth. To the churches in Galatia. Sound familiar? To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. To the church of the Thessalonians. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the church that meets in Lance, Pennsylvania. Okay, there's no letter that says that. But I think we can extrapolate. You get the picture? The church is not just all of the holy people of God. The church is also a particular group of people who are connected to one another in a certain locality. What we call a church family. A a local body. The church is local. Now catch this. The local church is responsible to God for what it does as a church. As this letter to the Corinthians unfolds, the Apostle Paul gives the whole church instructions on how to behave, on what to do and what what not to do, on what to believe, on how to practice their communal life as a church family. Read 1 Corinthians this afternoon and see what he says to a particular local church. And he treats the whole church as responsible for their choices as a church. I think that's really important for the case for congregationalism. Paul doesn't just write to the church leaders. He doesn't just write to the pastor of the Corinthian church or even just to the elders. There are some letters in the New Testament where he does. First and second Timothy, Titus. We call those the pastoral epistles. He's writing directly to an apostolic representative who is trying to establish these churches and get them going. Sure. But most of his letters... And most of the other epistles in the New Testament, not just the ones written by Paul, address the whole church and hold the whole church accountable for the choices that the whole church makes together. Think about the book of Galatians that we're studying right now. This letter goes to all the churches in the region of Galatia, not just to the leaders. Now, I'm sure those churches had leaders. The top leaders of most of these churches in the New Testament era appear to be called elders. And they were tasked with shepherding and teaching and leading these churches. But Paul didn't write just to them. He goes right to the people. And he holds them all accountable for what the whole church chooses. Read Galatians with this this in mind. He's not just talking to the leaders. 
He might be aiming some of it directly at the leaders because they might have been the ones that are the most in trouble. They might have been the ones leading the church in the wrong direction and listening to the false teachers. But he, he, he writes to everybody. Paul does not bypass the congregation. He takes his teaching right to them. And if the whole church has the whole responsibility for its decisions, then it makes sense that the whole church would have the whole authority it needs to make those decisions. That is the case for congregationalism. It's not so much that we have the right to govern our affairs as we have the responsibility to govern ourselves and, the will, and will be held accountable for how we do it. In verses 10 through 13 of chapter 1, Paul gives the church a hard time for infighting, for quarrels and divisions. They were experiencing church splits over personalities and what leader they identified with. Cut it out, church, Paul says. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. You see how he holds them accountable? No divisions, he says. No superstars. Nobody's saying, well, I like Pastor Matt. Well, I like Bob Geiswhite. Well, I like Keith Fulmer. Let's follow him. No. No. Pastor Matt didn't die for this church, he says. In chapter 5, he tells them that the whole church is responsible for exercising church discipline. As a church, they're supposed to put a sexually immoral man who claimed to be a Christian outside of church membership. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Notice that wasn't just said to the elders. That was said to the whole congregation. It is our job together to help each other be holy. And if someone will not be holy, it is our job together to put them outside in the hopes that they'll be restored. That's the same idea as what Jesus said in Matthew 18 with tell it to the church. It's the church's job to, to keep watch over each other, to help each other be holy. The first constitution of our church is only about five, four or five paragraphs long. And the last paragraph says this. If any member should now or in the future be such that he does not transport himself according to his profession and honorable calling in that he yields to any of the fleshly lust as specified in Galatians 5:19 through 21 and Ephesians 4:25 through 31 he or she shall be warned and admonished according to the provisions described by the word of God in Matthew 18:15 through 18 and 1 Timothy 5:2 our forebears understood this was our job as a church to hold each other accountable and to help each other be holy. The church is local and the local church is responsible for its choices, including what is taught. Think about that phrase about itching ears. Did you ever, did you ever notice that? In, it's 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Why? For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Is that happening today? You bet it is. But did you notice who's responsible? Is it the teacher? Well, sure, he's responsible for what he teaches. But what does Paul emphasize? They will gather around them a great number of teachers. The church is responsible for whom it calls to teach it, for whom it listens to. So friends, if I teach a false gospel, and I keep on teaching a false gospel, you are responsible. And it's your job to stop me. Do it. The congregation as a whole is responsible for choosing its leaders. Because the church as a whole is responsible for its choices. We believe it's important that the church as a whole has the authority to make all of the big choices. Now a church as a whole can't make all of the choices. But the church as a whole should be able to make all of the big choices. And any of the choices that they as a whole consider to be big. That's what we mean by congregational. That's what's hidden in that word, free. I serve on the Allegheny District Constitutions Board. And I read every governing document of every church that wants to join our association of churches. This Livingstone Fellowship is considering joining into the EFCA. And I said, well, send me your governing documents so I can look it over. One thing we check for is their doctrine. Do they have the same beliefs about the gospel that we do? Do they hold to the EFCA statement of faith? And the other big part of that job is to make sure that every one of those churches is truly congregational in how they do things. That the congregation as a whole decides who their pastor is, who their officers are, what the budget is, what will be done with their shared property, and what their constitution and bylaws say. It's my job in our district to make sure that any congregation coming in is its own highest authority. And we're committed to that here at Lance Free Church. It's our middle name. So here's where membership becomes so important. Because if it's the local congregation as a whole that makes the big decisions and is responsible before God for those decisions, how do you know who is the congregation and who is not? That's membership. Some people think that church membership is not in the Bible. I'd say it might have looked a little different than it does Now, in some ways, but there was definitely membership. In chapters 12, 13, and 14 of this book, 1 Corinthians, Paul unpacks his body metaphor in the greatest detail. Remember, the body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 12. That isn't just saying that we all have different gifts and that we all need to use them. That's true and right. But it's also saying that we belong to each other in the body of Christ. We're we're connected. We're members of one another. Like he said in Romans 12, In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. That's membership language. I remember a guy who used to go to church here a long time ago. And I was always trying to work on him to join the membership. And he's like, Why so much about membership? Why are you always on my back about membership? I've never been asked so much to join church. And my answer was always, it's biblical. And more than that, it's the kind of church we are. We are congregational. 
We need members to help us to make the big decisions because we are all going to be held accountable for the decisions we make. So if I'm on you about membership, this is why. And I only preach on it every 10 years, so you're not, you're not going to hear a bunch of messages about this, but this is our middle name. The church is local, and the local church is responsible for what the local church does. But also, number three, the church is global. As much as I believe in congregationalism, in the autonomy of the local church, it, it must always be tempered with a bigger view of the church universal. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, what's it say? Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? You see how the local church, and it's local, is still connected to the global church. They were praying for those guys with the hard-to-pronounce names. Right, Joel? The Bizdavkas and the Warzowskis and the Cerises. The local church may stand on its own, but it's not alone. It's not supposed to be alone. Together, it says, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if Lance is a church with a small C, and we don't want to lose that, we must always see ourselves as connected to the church with a big C. We must stay connected to other churches elsewhere. They may not have any authority over us, but they are still us, and we are still them. That's what the Apostles' Creed means by saying, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Not the Roman Catholic Church, but the Holy Universal Big C, everybody out there who belongs to Jesus Christ Church. That's what Catholic means in that sense. The communion of saints. We aren't just out on our own. We are part of something much bigger that spans the globe. Some people call that connectionalism. I have friends that are Presbyterians, and they love that word, connectional. We're a connectional church. Well, we as a church are both congregational and connectional. We try to live the best of both worlds. The EFCA is an association of autonomous but interdependent churches. A national EFCA thing, first part of the week. And my district EFCA thing, last part of the week. I leave tomorrow for Minneapolis for what they call the Missional Summit, where I'll be taking part in meetings of the Spiritual Heritage Committee. Please pray for me. I'll be seeing President Complin there, and we'll be talking about his visit in a week and a half. At the end of this week, Heather and I are going to the Allegheny District Pastors and Wives Retreat. Thank you for sending us. I'll see Pastor Jeff and Kim Powell there, and a bunch of our other district pastors as well. I love being connected in a family of churches that work together with a common theology and a common goal. Our church has always partnered with other churches. For a while, we were an evangelical covenant church. Did you know that? A lot of people don't know that. The evangelical mission covenant church was also Swedish, and they sent Swedish preaching pastors to be among us. We owe them a great debt. One of those old Swedes is still living, Pastor Chuck Anderson. And, we, and uh, Vera, we found, we found Pastor Chuck's address, and we sent an, him an invitation to our anniversary. I don't know if he'll be able to be with us, but we got to invite him. We have always connected with other churches, because even though the church is local, the church is also global. And I know that I'm running out of time. Here's point number four. The church is Christ's. 
The church is Christ's. The church belongs to Jesus. Look at verse 2 one last time. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The church does not belong to me. Sometimes people say, how's things going at your church? I know what they mean. And I'll say, my church, our church, but it's not my church. It's not our church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He bought it with his blood. So that means that congregationalism is not democracy. Congregationalism is not democracy. It is not a bunch of civilians all voting to get their way. Congregationalism, rightly practiced, is a Christocracy. It is a royal priesthood discerning together what we believe is the will of our Lord for this church body. Because Jesus is the head of the church. Our EFCA statement of faith says it this way, we believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which he is the head. Big C. The true church is manifest in local churches, small c, whose membership should be composed only of believers. The church is a holy people. The church is local. The church is global. And the church belongs to Jesus Christ. What is your application of today's message for your life? I know that in many ways it kind of seems like it's out there. How could you make it personal this week? I've given this list before, but let me say it quickly. Number one, be a part of the church. If you've not yet joined the membership, you need to seriously consider it. You hear why? It's because we are congregational. It's the kind of church we are. We just had a membership seminar over at Matt's house with a bunch of young adults at it. And we're going to have another one soon. Number two, do your part in the local church. So be the church. Live it out. You cannot go to church. You can't do it. You can't go to church. you got to be the church. You are a body part. Don't just sit there like some detached elbow out there somewhere. Get into the game. The nominating committee is beginning their work of finding officers for the congregation in 2018. Pray for them and consider how you could be used. And number three, never part from the local church. Now, I don't mean you can't leave this one. You certainly can. Nobody's locked into this local church for life. But don't try to be a lone ranger. We aren't meant to go it alone in the Christian life. We're meant to be a part of the local body of believers and help each other to live Christ-pleasing lives, sanctified and called to be holy together. Because Jesus is the head of the church. We are not free from him.